Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. And now for an exploding interview. Stay tuned. Welcome back to the Explominate Podcast. I am your host, Rob, and joining me again is my co-host, Ben. Welcome back, Ben. Thanks for having me, Rob. How are you doing? I'm doing well, man. I'm really excited about our interview here. And we are also joined by Jesse. Welcome back, Jesse. Great to be back. Great to have you back. And today we are going to be sitting down with two of Triumph Studios' best, Tom Bird and Leonard Sauce. Tom Bird, the creative director <laughs> i've already forgotten I'm the, um, I'm the lead designer of the game there we go oh my god i, I got so mixed up with directors and mm-hmm. different so but leonard sauce being the studio head and also director of yeah, the game director that's correct. there we go all right see i knew i was gonna mess that up but hello leonard how are you <laughs> hey good to be here thanks for the invite absolutely and tom thanks for being here too that's no problem at all yeah, you're going to be the one that corrects me, and I'm hopeful that you will. So Just say what you like. I'll let you know if you get anything wrong. <laughs> All right, great. Well, we are gathered here today to talk about Age of Wonders 4, and we kind of wanted to give you at least some time to kind of, you know, let things settle, the dust settle a bit after the release, which I imagine was very successful. Can you talk more about that? Oh, yeah. It uh, broke uh, our expectations by by a long shot. Uh, we were really happy with the initial uh, reaction of the public. We were happy with the sales. It has been really uh, a fantastic uh, release. There's no, no uh, getting around that. It was a bit of a gamble, of course, what we took. We uh, put a couple of like very, yeah, maybe... Know, like angles that we haven't uh, done before in the, in the Edge of Wonder series, the extreme focus on player agency, on a role-playing aspect, being able to form your own fantasy. Uh, that was the central USP, and that caught on. We haven't actually spoken in some time. The last time we spoke was for the last, I believe it was the last expansion for Age of Wonders 3. We we kind of touched base right before then. and I think it was, it was Planetfall, right? That was you, right. Yep. Yeah, yeah, you were on a podcast with, with Tom, actually, I think, on uh, on Planetfall, because Tom was actually... <laughs> He's no? like, <laughs> I don't think so. Okay. Well, it was somebody. It was Okay. Yeah, there was somebody there. I do remember that now. But, but since then, you guys have been partnered with Paradox. And so I'm curious to know like, just how that came to be and, and really, honestly, how that's going for you guys. They just turned up with an enormous sack of money and just threw it at Leonard. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the last thing we've seen him. He just like, sent me a letter, just say, yeah, just pretend that I'm in charge, do what you like. <laughs> and that was it. We haven't seen him since. He just like called me up out of the blue, you know, first time in six months. Like, hey, there's a podcast. Just act like I'm in charge. 
No, that's not true at all. Sorry, I'm really tired and I'm surviving entirely on coffee. Why don't you explain this? (laughs) It sounds like I'm going to have to keep you in check, Tom. Yeah, so yeah, the relationship has been really good. I mean, we, we got approached by uh, Fred Wester at one point at a party in um, at, in San Francisco, Game Game Health Conference, and um, yeah, we already have been talking for a long while. We know, yeah, you because know, they were a publisher, we were a strat- strategy game developer, of course, and there's always been a talk about like a corporation. It, it never came to being, but then at one point they were did, did their IPO, successful IPO in I think 16, 2016. Shortly after that, we, we met at this party and uh, yeah, the discussions just start, started there. It took a while and we said, oh, this is actually a very great match. I mean, if we were to sell Triumph to any type of company, you know, like how, how often does a specialist in strategy games come along with an offer where it is an interest to, uh, to, to purchase the studio? So we, uh, we thought really hard and long about it. And eventually we, uh, we said yes. And you know the uh, Arno, who is the, the was the co-founder of Triumph, and still is with the company. Uh, by the way, he's now the tech director. And I uh, said, like, yeah, we we both like making games most of, of of our responsibilities. So this acquisition would mean that we could focus more on the product, on the games, on the gamers, and that sounded like an awesome uh, idea. Yeah, and I I mean I I can only imagine that. I mean, it, from the outside looking in. It looks like Paradox's influence and their like marketing capabilities have really helped you guys. I mean, I I know that you know your previous games have done well, but I feel like this game, you know, like you said, it just defied all expectations. And I imagine some of the like the the marketing powerhouse of Paradox helped with that. I think so. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, the marketing department has has really leveraged uh, the uh, the core USP of that and did a very uh, fantastic campaign, primarily with with influencers, which really caught on very successful this is also like the first like planetfall was also released during our uh, acquisition with, with or part of being part of paradox uh, but this game of course was developed from the very start and you say I, I can see paradox influence i mean paradox has never said to us oh you need to go this or that way but we have been of course exposed we've been in many meetings with their game directors and um, yeah it was just a lot to uh, to see how they design their games and run their business. And that has absolutely been an inspiration. Do you have dialogue with some of the guys from Paradox, Paradox, particularly the games designers? And, you know, you sort of throw ideas around to one another. Yeah, absolutely. We we have regular syncs where we just sit together and talk about various game design topics, not necessarily our own games, but also just game design in general. And we, we, we take a look at each other's games for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, speaking to the success again, it was kind of fun because I was part of the the subreddits moderate. I, I was brought on to the subreddit really early, and it was you know I, I was frequently seeing these new milestones for the subreddit, like just how many new people. And it's wild because I was also a moderator for the subreddit for Age of Wonders three, and it just never picked up like it did with Age of Wonders four. And I just kept seeing like, oh, you've got ten thousand members. Oh, you've got fifteen thousand members. Oh, you've got twenty. I was just like, wow, like. That, that's just a testament to how quickly this caught on. And so, you know, we're, we're talking about design here for a second. And Ben brought up a good question. And I'm actually curious to know, like, how did you come up with the design for Age of Wonders 4? Because it, it is a bit of a shift from your previous games. So wh- what were the decisions made there and, and why were they made? For a large part, it was a reaction to, to our previous games. So while the team was, was still working on Planetfall DLC, 
there were a couple of learnings that we quickly saw is that first off with Planetfall, we spend a lot of effort in world building we spend a lot of uh, effort in building very you know beautiful richly detailed factions where some people really uh, got into that and, and got into the lore and uh, the play styles of these factions well other people just didn't care about particular factions and Secondly, they were very expensive to make. You know, there was never, a, for example, a mold that that introduced a new faction uh, to Planetfall just because of the sheer cost uh, that it would take to build a, a race or secret technology in uh, in Planetfall. So then, I went back and said, like, okay, cool, we we were gonna make a new Age of Wonders. What did we do in Age of Wonders? We had like a, these these schools of magic. Are we gonna do a get that again, or are we gonna maybe do something more radical? and allow people to just create their own faction. I mean, games like Stellaris allow you to create a faction. Um, there's also uh, Dominions, which you might know, allows you to play a, w- a wide variety of fantasies. So, like, how can we, we do this? And how can we you know, introduce something new, role-playing, give players more agency about what they want to do? So that's uh, yeah, when we started doing that. And of course, the big challenge was you know, how do we divide up the content? How do we sort of generate a lineup of units that um, looks cool, plays cool, and uh, can be expanded? And we knew that we would face backlash from people that were uh, you know, really in, into the lore. And of course, we, we made all sorts of additions to the universe and build on the, on the foundation that was already there, such as the, the multiverse component with characters moving to different dimensions and different realms outside of the world of Atla, which is the the, the core canon world of uh, of the Edge of Wonder series. So we played with that. We, uh, very quickly, it started to, to uh, connect and uh, pieces started falling into uh, into place. But that was a, a, an enormous amount of job. And uh, basically, the when when more designers came on board, they said like, oh my God, Len, what have you done? This is a, a, an incredible job to try and balance and make all the content for. And uh, But it's... Uh, yeah, it, it clicked uh, for the most part. <laughs> Just to answer my own personal curiosity, you were talking a little bit about your inspirations and sort of like the more open system that you're using with Age of Wonders four versus you know previous titles. And in the lead up, I you know you know I was like you know desperately reading every dev diary that you had coming out and was you know you know getting really excited about it. And I, I couldn't help but sort of like connect what you were doing here with what Paradox had done with Stellaris. Yeah. Which was a, like which felt like a very similar sort of step in regards to moving away sort of with you know the much more historically grounded and very focused factions to something that was was really driven by player agency and you know the, the specific tools that they have in Stellaris to put things together and the specific tools they have in Age of Wonders to put together you know are very different and very you know geared towards that game but I, I couldn't help but wondering if you know sort of like you had any sort of interaction with the Stellaris devs or there was any sort of like you know, seepage that happened there with your relationship with uh, Paradox. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, Stellaris is the game that's closest to uh, to Age of Wonders, even before we did Age of, Age of Wonders 4. Yeah, just looking at, at how players interact with that game and replay sessions, not necessarily to win the game, but also to, you know, to have a particular role-playing exp- uh, exper- experience or to tinker with a game. And I think that that there's different game audiences when you look at a particular game. There's, there's different ways people play. Yeah, I think that was really an eye-opener is to seeing that the role-playing aspect, which we, we have primarily delivered through sort of set campaigns where you could make some choices, 
but often they had very fixed narratives, you know, fixed hoops to play through. And we said like that oh, that open endedness that you see in Stellaris, but I think also in many other of their of the GSGs, especially Crusader Kings, uh, has been a massive uh, inspiration for sure. If I could add something. I think what's what's really important about Stellaris is that I mean, you, know, you look at other games. The endless games have come out, our games which have come out, and you know we put an awful lot of time into making these factions. But in the end, the players look at the faction as you like the faction or you don't. So I'm playing Planetfall. Really like the Amazons. I really like the Assembly, but I don't really like the Vanguard. So I don't play the Vanguard. Play the Assembly a few times, get bored. Play the Amazon a few times, get bored. Mix and match. But you reach a point where. I, as a player, have reached the limit of what the designer, also in this case me, but you know what I mean, has have put into the game. And at that point, you go, well, you know, that's it, and you can move on. The great thing about what Stellaris did was it basically said, well, look, you enjoy this and you enjoy that, but you yourself can make your own story in your head and put it into the game and see what happens. You're not limited by what one of Stellaris' designers have said. Stellaris has actually given you more toolkit so that you can make something yourself. And that was kind of really what we were aiming for with Age of Wonders forwards, rather than like us sitting around and giving you another six factions and then sell a couple of factions for DLC. We would give you a tooltip, sorry, a tooltip, a toolbox to make your own factions and make your own stories so that rather than you getting bored of our stories, you'd have your own stories and you won't get bored of your own stories because, you know, you, you, you make stories wherever you go as you, as you go out and you live your life. You know, I heard somebody was talking about uh, Baldur's Gate 3 and said, yeah, I think Baldur's Gate 3 has given me lots of ideas for like coming back to, plan- to Age of Wonders 4. You know, maybe I could make the Githyanki in Age of Wonders 4 or maybe I could make um, Druids fighting to, uh, to, to protect their grove from um, invading tieflings or something like that. And that's what's so great about Age of Wonders 4 and so great about Stellaris is... Um, you know, rather than being a closed walled garden, as it were, where the creativity is sort of like sitting in a box, you take it out, you play with it, you put it back in. It's an open garden where you can bring things from outside your own ideas, your own concepts, put it into the game and play with it and watch what happens. And I think that's that's really the secret of the game's success and the secret of Stellaris' success. Yeah, uh, honestly, it, it's really struck me hard in that regards and to the point where like, you know, I, I'm a very sort of like, you know, I don't care about skins and, you know, you know how things look usually, but like with Age of Wonders 4, I'm actually really excited about, you know, the DLC that you're rolling out that are going to have more forms because it's going to allow me to sort of like fulfill more of those sort of like role-playing fantasy race fantasies, you know, inserting them into Age of Wonders 4 and, you know, having that sort of like blended experience. And so it's, it's, it's really struck a nerve with me. And uh, another thing that I wanted to ask specifically about that is, you know, how did you settle on, so, you know, you, you have a specific number of ways that you can sort of customize your faction mechanically. You know, you have your form, which, you know, isn't as, but your, your form traits, you have your, your, your society traits, and all of these, you know, end up, you know, combining into, you know, determining your mechanical faction identity. So what I'm really curious about is how you settled upon the specific number of points that you are able to manipulate there. Like, did you try out more? Did you try out less? Or was it just sort of like naturally, you know, two society traits and, you know, the mind trait, the body trait and so on and so forth? Yeah, this is a good question. Our prototyping, like at the very start of the game, was for a large part also you know, aimed at this first creation process uh, because, you know, just like normally when you prototype a game, you, you know, you start with your core loops, with your gameplay loops. But for Age of Wonders 4, we made the customization interface, this, this, the front end, part of the, the, the proof of concept goals because it's so important to the experience. And 
early on we had uh, some some ideas of, uh, like like how do you approach this do you start with the fantasy that you want to play by choosing a graphical representation of sort of what you want to be so the form basically so you start off like oh i want to be something like an, an elfkin or a dwarf like character or do you reverse it and basically make a whole bunch of choices which then in the very end accumulates in a final form which then gets revealed to you you've made all these choices and then the system suggests maybe you should look like this but then you can change it depending on what you do so that was the first thing like how do you create that thing and we felt that the uh, yeah the, that the first sort of visual that people a lot of people are visually oriented that really anchored the creation processes by having that that first choice but then we had the problem where some people expecting that very first choice that you make to be the be-all and end-all, that, that there will be a lot more properties already sort of baked into the form. Well, actually, you create your race or your faction by combining all these front-end steps and continue to evolve them in the game. So that that's some. So we, we had to do so much internally, but later on that discussion also emerged uh, on forums. Like what constitutes the race or what constitutes the faction is the race really about a sort of bio-essentialist you know the form dictates everything culture is not important the social traits are not important so there was a huge huge discussion about this this particular topic and then uh, of course like what sort of bandwidth would we have in terms of steps uh, creation steps first we were quite conservative saying like yeah we shouldn't have too many most games only have a couple of steps and that's how you create your character or your faction and it ended up that people really love it and maybe we could have even added more steps really to that creation process i hope that answers some of your questions i mean there were a bunch of more things uh, in, in terms of like shifting you know how form works how many attributes do we want in form how many do we want to so we wanted to have the, the first step really be about the body or about the people the, the sort of organic nature of your of your being and then really having a larger conceptual culture step which then could be fine-tuned by by, by more smaller cultural attributes and yeah, using a point system, using two slots as we had previously, we're going to change it now into 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 multiple slots for forms, which is really quite exciting for the golden patch, which is upcoming. So a lot of back and forth, and uh, in the end, I'm I'm quite proud of what the what we've done here uh, with, with that create creator, and a lot of people play with with customized characters, so that's uh, that's been really good to see. I think another thing that uh, that we really struggled with is the idea that. When you're in a character creator, and a little bit like if you're playing an RPG or something, the character creator is just the beginning of your character. It's not to be all and end all of your character. You know, as you travel through the game, you're, you're picking up these tomes, you're picking up these trace transformations, and the process continues. So people are asking, you know, oh, you know, why can't you do this in the beginning? Why can you not do, do that in the beginning? It's like, well, because you do that later. And it became quite a sort of a struggle within the design to um, categorize different types of content and different types of mechanic into different areas of the game because if you front load everything then there's nowhere to go when you get to the game itself if you see what i mean but on the other hand if at the beginning of the game you almost make no choices at all people won't even get later on to the journey because i'll just assume oh you know i'm just i'm hardly picking anything you know there's there's not there's no me in this character it's not simple enough people don't 
have the time to see the rest of the game. So we had to make a lot of choices to try and sort of explain to the player, you know, this is your race. Your race isn't just the form at the beginning. The race is everything you put together, but also as you keep going, you have these race transformations, these enchantments. Uh, at one point, it kind of got cut. We also had this idea of like a race council that you would be able to, um, like there'd be like a number of people who represented like your race and, and you'd be able to talk to them. They'd ask you to do things, you'd try and make them happy and stuff. And then that would also shape your race. And you can still see like um, old, old parts of that system, where, um, you know, occasionally you'll get an event and, you, and, the, and the people will go, hey, you know, can you go and do a quest for us or go and find this? And, like, you know, if you do the right thing, then the race will shift. But it's, it's quite minor. It used to be a much, much bigger part. So, yeah, the whole game is about character creation in a way. You know, your, your, character, your character or your race doesn't stop changing. Either. The whole game is an enormous character creator. It's just that most people's characters are created as they live, not before they live. If that makes sense, it doesn't sound too pretentious. No, not at all. I was interested to know, one of the things that I've noticed hanging around in 4X communities is the startling number of different play styles that people approach these games with. I remember talking to a friend and we were chatting about the original Master of Magic. And I was saying, uh, you know, the AI was kind of broken, so it didn't really excite me because, you know, I wanted a challenge. And he was like, well... He just played it as like a sandbox game. He, he quite liked that the challenge was quite easy because it gave him this opportunity to, you know, to kind of do the empire building and the and the sort of headspace kind of development. And I found that absolutely mind-boggling because I didn't think it was that kind of game at all. And the more that I kind of went down this this rabbit hole of, hang on a minute, maybe there's other people who play games differently to me. And I started asking more questions. It became clear to me there's a huge variety of these people. Um, and it seems to me that you really have leaned into this kind of game design principle now where you're... You know, you're allowing people. It's. I think Age of Wonders was always a great min-maxing game, right? So for min-max people uh, who like to optimize everything in their build, you know, really, really stack the numbers, which is you know something that I think is good about paradox games as well. They've always been good for that. But I feel that you've really ramped up the sandbox aspect of of Age of Wonders now too. I'm interested to know, like, how did that balancing act work? Because there really is a balancing act to be made between mechanical complexity and challenge and also allowing uh, an expansive sandbox within which people can play in? Yeah, another fantastic question. Um, I think what you say about the old Age of Wonders band basically being you know, min-maxing games and almost like turn-based RTS games like, like StarCraft, you know, competitive, quite a small but very fierce competitive uh, PvP com community. You know, exposing you know every little detail about combat mechanics or combat-focused, great tactical combat, of course. We also noticed that a lot of people, you know, get fatigued by that um, because the tension is always on. Also, when you fail, for example, when you you're you're facing an AI or a human player, you you invest maybe eight hours in a game, and then you get like you know slaughtered in a, in a very brutal way. A lot of people, uh, yeah, some people like that, but a lot of people also like a more chill experience, just to build, to turtle, have fun, and sort of, yeah, determine their own challenge and, and have fun in that sandbox, not necessarily always have the heat on. And I think that, 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 that audience is a lot larger than maybe we originally anticipated. One of the things we learned in Planetfall was, you know, we were having a lot of people asking us to um, add more depth to Age of Wonders 3, and we, we really went all in on that. Planetfall had a lot of very complex game, very in-depth game, um, but we realized that, you know, 
as Lance said, it, it not and not everybody wants that. So when we uh, started Edge of Wonders four, we really went back to the drawing board, as it were, and sort of like looked at how we made Edge of Wonders three too simple, Edge of Wonders uh, Planet four a bit too complicated. Tried to find a middle ground. Tried to look at ways of um, staging complexity. So you know, you'll notice that the early game units in Edge of Wonders four are really simple, and that's on purpose. So you know you. You start the game, everyone's simple, very little complicated is going on, so you can learn learn the rules. Then as the game goes on, after learning the rules, you let the player play with the rules. So that means you just look at tier two and tier three units. They tend to follow the rules as a design. So, you know, shock units, just shock units, and um, archers, just archers. But they'll do something else to sort of enhance their ability. So, you know, you've learned the basic rules of the game. But now we can sort of push it a bit further and say, well, logically, the rules will lead to this. We're still following the rules, but, you know, adding a bit more depth. And then after playing with the rules, you slowly let the player break the rules, which is where the complexity starts really ramping up, where you have mythic units, which simply don't don't follow any rules at all. They just do what they want. Um, a lot of more strange things start happen. So by doing it that way, by carefully sort of like shepherding the player through the process, rather than just sort of dropping them in at the deep end early on, which um, is quite easy to do as a strategy game designer, you can have a much more approachable system and a much more sandboxy system where the player is eased into the complexity and eased into everything. And that also sort of really helps in terms of accessibility and letting the game reach more people, I find. Right. And speaking of some of that, I think that one of the major departures, I mean, I, I, I think the game really feels it's it's kind of unique in and of itself and that it's, I know that it follows a lineage of the Age of Wonders games previously, but it also feels kind of its own, like its own thing. And one of the things that really caught my attention early and I still think is one of the most innovative ways to like change up gameplay, you know, two thirds of the way, three quarters of the way through the game is these transformations, these major transformations that you guys have talked about and have introduced to the series. And I'm curious to know how that idea came to be and I mean, honestly, to give kudos, because I think it's pretty awesome. But I, yeah, I'm curious to know, like, you know, where, where did that come from? And was that was that intention, what, like the the transformations were they intended to, you know, as you guys have said, kind of further create the story or further tell the story that this players the players are trying to play and tell? One of the core fantasies that we wanted to have is to make the people, make the player feel like this this godlike being, uh, having this sort of minion race, like Saruman uh, creating the the Urukai, right? Or um, I think another example that we had very early on is say you're this powerful ice wizard. You know how do you want your elite troops to look like? How do you want your people to look like? And um, you know, it's coming off uh, Game of Thrones, where you had these these White Walkers. We, all, we very early had this this sort of concept. So, like, if you are this powerful Frost Wizard, yeah, maybe these these um, uh, what was their name again? Uh, the um, White Walkers. White Walkers, yes, White Walkers. You had Wildlings. You know, that was the barbarians, and you know, maybe that's how they start. And then, you know, in in sci-fi, you can uplift your race. You know, that's a gender trope but but why don't we have so this sort of uplifting in fantasy and um so why wouldn't we be able to change these wildlings into these white walkers maybe using necromancy using frost magic and then create this this new sort of form which allows you to uh, to conquer the world so that that's uh what the where, where the id sort of came from and um 
but also, I mean, in a way, it's, it's simply an extension of, of, you know, if you look at the most popular strategy games, creativity is always sort of sat in the middle of it. Even non-strategy games called Minecraft, the massive success, uh, Stellaris, uh, CK3, all of these games have this sense of creativity, uh, City Skylines, but most of them are about creating a universe, about creating a world, and logically speaking, creating a race at the same time is it, it, simply the next step. Because, you know, you, your world is made up of two things, made up of the geography and the things within it, solid things within it. It's also made up by the people and the civilizations that were within it. Civilization lets you control the social aspects. And we simply took it one, one step further by saying, well, not only do you control the social aspects, you control the biological aspects of your race as well. And, yeah, it, it turned out really well. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a good word. You mentioned Civ. And if you look at Civ, you go through these ages, right? There's a really strong sense of progress. And, you know, a Fantasy 4X game, in a sense, has a problem, right? Because it's sort of stuck in sort of a medieval version of technology, right? Yeah, you never, you never develop. Yeah, so uh, that's what we had. In, I mean, sure, you could have some factions with guns and you could have some more powerful magic and some better swords or, you know, more trained. But the, the world was, you know, primarily static. And we wanted to get around that. Uh, and these transformation enchantments were a huge part of making... Uh, the progress less static. It was always very strange, like, you know, you play a sci-fi game or you play Civ and, like, you, you research, you go forwards. Fantasy games can't do that because, logically speaking, you look at this, like, world and it, it, all of these different franchises just like, yeah, you know, you've got a bunch of guys are living in a stone city and the stone city is, like, 5,000 years old and there's a bunch of guys wearing armor and you go back 5,000 years, same guys, same armor, same swords, 5,000 years, they have learned nothing <laughs> and it's really important to how the genre works and it's a big problem for a 4x game because development and progress is a critical part of the 4x genre you know it, it, it's central it's one of, it's one of the pillars of the game so you know it, it race transformation this ability of sort of like evolution is a really good way of expressing that without undermining what makes a fantasy world a fantasy world rather than an actual sort of like I don't know, sort of developing into more of like a steampunk evolution. How much of your design efforts go into multiplayer as well? Because there's always this kind of conflict when you're when you're designing a 4X game, I think, where, you know, there's a small proportion of the players who play multiplayer, but they are kind of significant too. And you're wanting to cater to those guys, but also trying to make the single player experience interesting too, because you know, overly balanced games in single player don't always kind of work that well. I'm interested to know, like, how did you approach that kind of design conundrum? Uh, <laughs> 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 I don't know, like normally we're jumping on the questions and this one is, uh, yeah, it's a classic. It's a, it's a really complex topic. I mean, for us, when we started making Age of Wonders, uh, the very first one, uh, you know, it was, it, it, you know, we came from a, a time when we we played a lot of these games, even in hot seats, you know, when when in, in our college days and as kids sure. playing turn-based games against each other. So for us, there was just a total need to have multiplayer in in Age of Wonders. Um, you know, we as developers have a lot of fun playing multiplayer, and um, it's even the case that for many of our games in the past, the game would first be you know, fully playable against other humans uh, before we developed uh, the full-on AI. Um, so we, our first test cases were human versus human. That's how we test a bunch of our combat systems and some of our world map systems. 
in the multiplayer uh, uh, environment. So we so we're very much dedicated uh, to that playstyle and to that community. But uh, as you say, uh, you know, they are at odds. There are players who like asymmetry. There are players who like, you know, to find exploits. I mean, finding the exploit is the fun bit. But then, of course, if people keep on using it and it breaks the game, it's not so much fun. And it's a constant balance that we have to play. And it is a little bit political at times. But I think we do have some, some, some general principles which we, which we try to live by, mm-hmm. like, for example. Yeah, definitely. If you look at the at the spread of what's in the game, different mechanics, different playstyles, it is literally impossible to balance. You could never balance uh, Age of Wonders for it. It's a pipe dream. It's never going to happen. So generally, there are certain things that we try to watch out for. Um, if something is so strong that it simply undermines a core idea behind the game, uh, then, we tr- then we try to fix it. And it doesn't matter if that's in multiplayer or in single player, because in single player, what will happen is that people will feel obliged to use particular high-powered um, strategies to the exclusion of other things. And even though they're kind of doing it to themselves, it's human nature to, to do this, and then they limit themselves, and then therefore they limit their enjoyment of the game because it's just like, yeah, this is powerful and it's fun. Sure, it's fun now, but if you do it 10 times, it's still fun, and then you can plan, oh, I was doing this, but it wasn't as fun as doing that. So we have to then step in and roll it back. Obviously, we want it to stay fun, but we don't want it to be so fun that you feel as if you're being ripped off or if you're deliberately shooting yourself in the foot if you don't do it. So that's one of the main things that we'll try. Um, a lot of people are asking us as well, um, you know, why do you uh, have to nerf things? You know, it's always better to buff things. And, and we've done that in the past, uh, obviously, which is a very practical problem here, which is simply that if you have a hundred things and two of them are very strong, making 98 things stronger is a lot harder, but also a lot more dangerous than making two things weaker. So that means typically we, we do tend to need to weaken things, especially in an environment like Age of Wonders 4, simply because there's so much stuff in the game that we need to balance. But finally as well, it's um, as, we, as, as we learned in, in the Watcher open beta when we kind of heavy-handedly balanced things which uh, we then reverted because people didn't like it we need to be very very aware that it's the player's story and players want to feel powerful it's it's it, maybe it, it sounds like an infant infantilizing people but in the end people a lot of people play games as a power fantasy they want to experience feeling strong and if we go around and make everything feel kind of crappy and weak and balanced they're not going to get that anymore so yeah it's it's, it's a fine line, and the current thing is we nerf. If we really have to, we nerf if a strategy is so dominant that everybody is using it because it's obviously undermining other parts of the game and we want people to uh, enjoy all parts of the game. And if possible, we see, you know, is it possible to make other aspects of the game more attractive? We will do that, but if that's not possible, we'll simply have to nerf it so that players feel, in a way, the freedom to move to other aspects of the game without feeling like they're sort of, you know, handicapping themselves. You see, this is why I wanted to ask you this question. It wasn't to put you on the spot because I know it is a complex topic and I'm out of my depth with it, I'll be honest with you. But I knew, like, I think that you guys have got it about right, okay? And I think that it's you, you just touched on a critical point for me, Tom. It's that kind of feeling of power that you get. That's I, I partly am a, you know, like one of these guys who likes the power trip when I'm playing games. And I think that certain single-player games can really, really ramp that up 
um, but they wouldn't necessarily translate to a balanced multiplayer experience. And we were discussing Dominions before, and that's a perfect example. And there are some incredibly broken strategies in Dominions that would be a shame if you kind of took them out of the single player game just so that uh, multiplayer was kind of more balanced, you know. And I think that, I mean, that is an, even as a multiplayer game, it's quite an unbalanced game. Uh, it still kind of works, but it has to have its own set of sort of house rules around it. Um, whereas I think I've not played Age of Wonders for multiplayer very much, but I, I've, in fact, I've not played it at all. But I've spoken to people who do enjoy it, and it sounds like you've kind of got that balance about right. And I think that's that's quite commendable because it's a really, really difficult problem. I think. Well, we 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 are in a way reliant on other people. It, it's there are huge. When you have a game with this many options in it, you know, people are like, well, why don't you figure this out yourself? It's just like, well, you know, there are about 40,000 combinations in the game. <laughs> you know, we can't test everything. Um, you know, a lot of things slip through the track. So we, we listen to people's uh, feedback. You know, we, we make our decisions to try to keep everything balanced. But yeah, in the end, the game is it's more important that the game is fun than that the game is balanced. It's also very important to remember when we're talking about multiplayer that a really big aspect of the game isn't uh, competitive multiplayer, it's cooperative multiplayer. It's about people helping each other in the game. And I think that really co-op multiplayer was a big focus of ours as well. So, you know, ways of people to sit in the game and play together against a uh, against a foe, which is why we put in like the special realm traits, like when um, you know, there's a bunch of dragons and you can get together with your friends and try to defeat all of the dragons who are in big teams. So that's also, in my mind, probably more important i think in competitive multiplayer like that's that's a lot of people obviously competitiveness is, is a big part of the psyche but so is friendship and a lot of people i suspect more people play co- uh, cooperatively than competitive yeah it's a great point and that's absolutely true it's uh it's like the, not a lot of people have the energy to go in a competitive game where you try to really take out other human players for uh, in a game that lasts like eight hours um uh, while playing such an experience co-op uh, with the uh, with the goal of staying alive and, uh, and together and, and going through that game, those eight hours together, is a lot more inviting uh, to a lot of players, for sure. Before we continue, let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So I'm curious to know what the feedback from players has been maybe on the negative side of things and like where you see Age of Wonders kind of reacting to that and the team reacting to that and how you plan to address some of that. I mean, I'm, I I know some of the stuff from my perspective, but I'm just curious to know like where where the most complaints or maybe where the most frustrations or maybe the, the most suggestions are coming from. Um, yeah, it's a mix of things. We did uh, quite some analysis on this uh, on this topic, like why do people leave a negative review? And for us, uh, you know, every player, we, we, we're here to entertain people, right? And if people do not get entertained, we always ask ourselves, how could we make that people do feel entertained? You know, uh, it's not that we try to make a game for everyone. Don't, don't, don't mistake that. But of course, it starts off with ensuring that the technical foundations are solid on, you know, everybody's uh, or wide wide variety of machines to ensure that uh, the performance is is right. Um, 
And then you take a look at deeper issues, like fundamental things like AI development. It's always incredibly complex in a game like Age of Wonders. Uh, AIs provide a lot of the challenge uh, to the players to ensure that is all right. You know, deeper issues, it's like one wrong variable uh, when it comes to the economy, when it comes to victory conditions can really offset balance. Uh, people can play this game in many, many different ways, uh, you know, with the realm setup, for example. And uh, it's ensure that we maybe rein in a couple of these settings, like the very wild realm settings or uh, and whatnot. So it's, it's across the board. And, uh, but yeah, the priorities are a uh, stability. Um, we've, I think we've come a very long way. Multiplayer stability, AI, balance, and then, you know, deeper, maybe like fundamental issues that people have with certain game systems. So like, okay, maybe we should revisit it. And I think uh, what's beautiful about this day and age is that, uh, you know, games can evolve with the audience together. Uh, so a lot of these uh, big 4X games and GSGs, they are alive for a long time and uh, they evolve over years in uh, some direct conversation with the fan base. Uh, it's not that the, they steer the development directly, but there is an interchange and we take a lot on board and we consider things and we, we, we try and take our games to the next level in, in conversation with the fans. Another thing I think um, going more to the game develop sorry design side of things where I'm moving away from like more technical aspects, which was a bit depression to talk about, is the idea of uh, possibilities is that um as a story, right? So when we started with the forms, which is the physical shapes, as it, you, you, you got it. the first design was really quite regimented. So we decided the forms up into different cat families. You had, I think, what was it? Horde, which was like the rat people and the uh, goblins. And, and they had their own rules. If all Horde things had this. And then if you were the goblins, they'd have their own things. It was all locked together. And as the game developed, it got looser and looser and looser until we ended up with these big lists. And then it was like, what was the list? Yeah, certain forms could only choose certain things from the list. Um, so that would mean that only... Um, so goblins, for example, weren't allowed to take strong, right? In the same way that orcs weren't allowed to take sneaky or something. like. I, I, I forget exactly how it was because, frankly, it was arbitrary. It didn't make much sense. But, you know, we had this list and it made, it, it, the attempt was, you know, let, let's give players these, these these rules so that people will think, yeah, you know, my, my form matters. And every time you sit down to play, it's like, cool, I want to make some goblins. Right, let's have some strong goblins. No, says the game point. So you know, I'm not allowed. I'm stuck with this. Well, I want to be strong. Well, that means you have to be one of these three guys. I don't want to be one of those three guys. I want to be that guy. And so we removed it, and then we just said everyone can be anything, and everyone went nuts, but they liked it, and we kept it. So it's about opening possibilities, and a lot – I'm not sure if this comes from feedback per se, but when we're looking at ways of improving the game, a lot of it comes down to simply how can we add more possibilities into the game? And I said that in a way about nerfing things, but also about buffing things. It's like, how do you add more choice into the game so that when the player does something, it gives a cool result rather than a not-so-cool result? So, for example, in one of the first uh, updates we made for the game, we increased the number of units that could be mounted. Um, so if you chose a special mount, like one of spiders or unicorns, um, more creatures became mounted. And that was simply to make those more attractive so that that felt more fun. And we did it. Everything exploded and the balance of the game imploded. But 
everyone really loved it. And the things we're doing right now, so as, as Len mentioned, for example, we're looking at how form traits are put together, which is coincidentally where you are choose to be on the special mount. We're redesigning that in such a way that players can have more choice. So rather than being stuck in these two lists, you get one larger list and you can just pick more freely from that. And once again, it's just about adding possibilities into the game. So on a creative level, that tends to be our focus, either either by adding whole new content, as we might do in a DLC or in a free update, or simply looking at existing content and say, you know, are there rules in here which don't need to be here? Are there things, are there possibilities, ways of using stuff we've already got, which we hadn't looked before, which would let the player experience new things in the game just by tweaking some things or taking a rule out or changing it? On a slightly different topic, you know, the players were quite surprised, I think, in a good way in regards to the arrival of your first DLC, Dragon's Dawn, I think it was. And, you know, I, I was curious, like, you know, how did that happen? Because, it's you know, it, it's it's pretty rare for things to arrive early. Um, and, you know, uh, so how, how did that come about? All right. Yeah, good question. Um, so Dragon's Dawn is what we say content pack. So it means that it's very art heavy as opposed to systems heavy. So when a game finishes uh, or it gets ready before release, it means that usually programmers and designers are very, very busy getting the game ready for release. Well, most of the art is actually locked. So this means that during that last stretch, what's called the beta period or the, 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 the period towards Gold Master, um, the artists um, need to look ahead and need to look forward. And in this period, uh, we started on Dragon's Dawn, uh, making all those beautiful dragon uh, forms and the content for the tomes. There, were, of course, was some design uh, being done and some code support, but it's nothing compared to a full-on DLC, what we're doing for uh, Empires and Ashes. So it, for us, it was uh, lo- logistically, it, it, um, it came at the right time. And of course, there was a lot of planning involved to ensure that we uh, we had a very clear goal of what we wanted to do, um, you know, earlier on. And um, yeah, it's also the strength of this this modularity system that we have that we can now more relatively quickly add uh, new forms. For for the in the past, when we needed to make a full on uh, lizard race, uh, it meant a lizard tech tree, uh, full on lizard units. And now we can say like, okay, let's make a lizard form and allow people to combine existing pieces together. So that was a part of it as well. I'm interested to know, after you were saying that it was very, very difficult for you to add new races into Planetfall because of just the amount of work, how easy is it to add new content into Age of Wonders 4 with this new system that you've got? Um, it's, a, it's a lot faster um, when it comes to asset production, but you still have the same issue as before, where you talk about design space, right? So there's only so many colors on the color wheel, um, so many fantasy, so many maybe fantasy topics that you can um, bring before the colors start to bleed together. So I think in that sense, the challenge is the same, and maybe also a bit more difficult in the sense that a lot of things need to work together. But when it comes to sheer production volume, the modularity has has a lot of benefits from from the development point of view and it's already fantastic to see community making new tomes of magic for example and of course anime girls. yeah anime girls as well yeah. but also new tomes of magic is it's just really good and uh, to see what the, what the teams are, are doing and that's just a wealth of uh, cultural uh, references to tap into as well where people can draw inspiration from so 
I think in the end, it's, it's, it's converted. In the end, a lot of it is simply having bits which are smaller. Like you know, a secret tech in Planet Four had something like like fifteen, twenty skills in it, five units, three units, um, and, and that's a lot of work. It's an enormous amount of work to put that together with professionals, and it would take us. You know, a, a few weeks to put that together, lots of discussion going backwards and forwards, professional artist here, this and that and the other. Whereas, you know, a time is six things. And it's much quicker to do, much simpler, much easier to put together, especially if, you know, only like, a few of them actually need art and something like that. I think that the modularity system is a great step forward. The only real downside to it is it is, it is a technical challenge to understand how the models and meshes need to work together to actually create a new a new form like for example if you got into your head you know i'm going to um, open Maya and i'm going to put i don't know I'm, I'm i'm going to put bat people into the game you know and, and you, you you find a model of a, mat, a bat and you or you make a model of a bat and you try to get that into the game that that would be a challenge simply on a technical level because to try and understand how a modularity systems works how all of those tiny little meshes were merged and blended together and animated is, is unfortunately quite technical so you know we, we have guides and things which explain it but you know that will remain a challenge but um certainly easier than it used to be so gentlemen moving into quarter four here with the golem update can you tell us a little bit about what you guys plan to bring to the table just outside of the expansion because i know that it's going to be releasing alongside the Empire and Ashes DLC, but the Golem update itself, what are you guys planning for that? I think the most important thing we've been looking at is a, is a war coordination. We know from a lot of people that um, they get frustrated that, you know, you've got your ally there and you say, hey, you know, let, let's go and attack the city, but the ally is like a black box. It's an AI, can't tell them to do anything. So you, uh, yeah, it's frustrating. So we're, we're looking into systems where you can send messages to your um, allies, but also your vassals and control what they do. So that like, for example, if you're getting invaded, you can say to your vassal, help, and the vassal will generate an alarm and it will come toodling over to your um, city and start beating up the people attacking you so that you're free to go up and do something else. Or so you, you know, if you're um, invading something, you and your ally are both, you know, next to some guy and you're both going in there, but we're directing that guy to um, go and attack the enemy specifically. So you can actually say, hey, go for that city on the left, whilst I go for this city on the right. Um, that That's what we're planning. It's, 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 it's prototypes in the game, uh, looking quite good. Item Forge, actually, uh, a big one. I mean, we've always had item forges in, in our previous games, and for this one, we wanted to do something special. And of course, still make it free because item forges were free in the previous games. And for this one, we've uh, maybe I, I will spoil too much, but I can maybe lift a little, little bit on this. That is, uh, magic materials that are already part of the game are actually going to be part of the item forge system. And it's going to be a best one yet. Ooh, I like it. I like it so much. <laughs> Peel back that curtain a little bit, Leonard. <laughs> so, yeah, that's that's great because I, I, I mean, I appreciate the the magic ingredients as they are now and, and how they can buff your empire, but to have more of that, you know, actually in, in, in as an integral part of your gameplay and, and through the item forge. I was going to ask about the item forge because I'm really excited about that. But of the things that have been announced, are those two the things you guys are most looking forward to? Or is there something about what you guys want to do that you are able to talk about that you're also really excited about? Uh, like the things we have announced, that's those are the things we can talk about. But of course, we, we're just like, in general, just looking forward into, you know, just improving this this game step by step. And I think that's where a lot of the progress 
is coming from from all these small uh, little fixes that that count up and you know slowly mold this this sculpture which is this game into in, into this, this this beautiful piece and you know like watcher had like 26 pages of of fixes and i think it will be no different for golem um and all these little things are gonna work together in 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 in, in bringing this this experience to a next level I think we're going to wrap up soon, guys. I've got a comment, though, that I want to make. It's not a question. Um, I was incredibly impressed with the quality of Age of Wonders 4 when it when it released. We've been really disappointed in Forex, in the Forex community for a while because we just seem to have had like shoddy release after shoddy release. And yet some like minor, minor little issues aside, um, my, my copy of Age of Wonders was just pristine when I got it. And it was, you know, it, it's it's so nice to be able to say that. And it's also kind of, it's a bit of a damning indictment on the industry at the moment that we that we have to single people out to say, well done, you got it right, you know? But yeah, I just want to give you guys some credit because it, it, it released in incredible shape and it's just, it's obviously going from strength to strength. So thank you very much. It's just great to hear. <laughs> it's been a lot of uh, hard work. And of course, these, these type of games are incredibly complex. It's not an excuse, but uh, you know, you can, these, these games can be played in so many ways and uh, on so many different types of computers. And that makes the entire QA process uh, an enormous uh, job. Yeah, I, I want to actually back up Ben there. Like, I, I was really, really impressed with Age of Wonders 4's release. Um, I'm actually a latecomer to the series. Um, I didn't actually even play 3 or Planetfall until this past fall. Um, and, you know, I, I, I like them. I enjoyed them. Um, but, you know, I, I've been sort of, like, shaped by, like, more modern sensibilities to the point where I was sort of like, you know, they're good but not great, but Age of Wonders 4 is great. Um, it was really impressive to me. And, you know, you guys really just, like, knocked it out of the park. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, I guess I'll just pile on here with the the positive stuff because <laughs> I think that I mean I've I've mentioned this in my review and you know a lot of the things that I've said with regards to like our content creation and stuff. But I I felt like Age of Wonders four was easily it just it stood out for how well it stood at release and you know like Ben kind of mentioned you know it's it's kind of frustrating that we have to you know we're we're at a point that you know, we have to say, yay, you guys did it pretty well. But no, like it was, it, it stood out because it just felt like a complete game. Like there didn't feel like there was anything that was missing. The, I mean, I, I played it for 170 hours and I know that I'll play for more because it's just, there's so much more to do, but I just, I want to acknowledge that because I think you guys did a really great job of, of what I believe, like clearly you guys have iterated on this series and you've like, you know, to come back to the drawing board and revamp it in so many ways and then still knock it out of the park like you guys did. And in my opinion, I just I think that takes a lot. So it's really cool to see Triumph Studios kind of just coming into their own like this. Cool. Thanks. And we're not done yet. There's a lot to do. Yeah, we're, we're excited. Yeah. <laughs> we're very excited. So I'm sure you guys are, too, but we're very excited to see what's next. And Empire and Ashes coming out in the fourth quarter of this year. And with that, the Gollum update, we're, we're excited about that. And then what's to come next year. So I really want to take, take the time to thank both you, Leonard and Tom for joining us today and talking us, talking to us about Age of Wonders 4. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Thank you for having us. A pleasure. Thank you very much. Yes, it was a pleasure to have you guys. And hopefully we can have you back on next year as we talk more about the content that's coming next year. But until then, this was Rob, Ben, Jesse, Tom, and Leonard. For Explorinate. Until next time, keep exploring.